You're listening to The Skeptic's Guide to the Universe, your escape to reality. Hello and welcome to The Skeptic's Guide to the Universe. Today is Wednesday, May 27th, 2015, and this is your host, Stephen Novella. Joining me this week are Bob Novella. Hey, everybody. Jay Novella. Hello, Harry Potter. And Evan Bernstein. <laughs> Hello. What's up, man? You got to get one of those out every couple of weeks, Jay, right? I, mean, I cannot just... help myself. I get into fits, I think. I just I get on it and I just talk, do that in the car, like to and from work every day. Just to, just to entertain yourself? Harry <laughs> Potter. It's one of those things. So, guys, I'm completely blown away by this uh, the news item that came out. We're not covering it, but I wanted to talk about the FIFA officials being arrested. Yeah, it was big. Ooh, yeah. Yeah, it's a big deal. They were in uh, in, in Zurich, apparently at some hotel, some, uh-huh. some lavish hotel, five-star situation, and um, U.S. feds went in and got them. You know, I guess there had been tons of charges uh, brought against them, and, you know, it's, it's just a big deal. Serious charges. Look at this. Racketeering, wire fraud, money laundering. This is, this is big. Big news. But did you guys read like the details? Like I didn't know how bad it was. I heard that they were corrupt or whatever. Just figured that, you know, companies, when you start to earn billions of dollars that, you know, there's lots of different kinds of shenanigans going on or whatever. But this organization, you know, was influencing countries, you know, like mm-hmm. able to, mm-hmm. to do lots of things like, you know, use coercion and blackmail and, you know, just all sorts of the top end nasty stuff to get what they want. You know, I guess the United States, since it's not, you know, the country is not a big fan of soccer, they they were not under the thumb of this company in any way, and they 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 got them. I don't know. I don't know what's going to happen. You know, it looks like people are going to jail. Wow. And large sports organizations, they don't usually they're not usually the target of these kinds of investigations, say by the U.S. Justice Department. So that sort of puts this particular investigation into a realm of its of its own because of the prominence i mean it just doesn't get higher than the u.s justice department at least in the, in the united states it's enormous yeah i mean racketeering conspiracy and corruption are some serious charges man that you do not want to be accused by a government of doing those things well guys we have a great show coming up uh we have an interview later on with paul braderman who is uh a scottish skeptic and secularist who is been very successful in battling creationism across the pond. Uh, but first, Bob, you're going to tell us about this week's Forgotten Superhero of Science. All right, guys. Uh, this week for my Forgotten Superheroes of Science segment, I'm going to talk about Georges Méliès, or you could also pronounce it, I guess, Georges Méliès, who was a, uh, a French filmmaker and illusionist who made the first science fiction film and is considered the father of special effects. Ever hear of him? Yep. Yeah. Now this, <laughs> nope. Because I watched the movie Hugo, Bob. <laughs> yes, Hugo. Yeah, the guy's got a couple oh. books. He's got a, a movie that's partly based on his life. And so, yeah, he's not quite as obscure as most of the people I cover. But um, he's, I, wouldn't, I wouldn't say he's a household name. And uh, I was just uh, surprised at, uh, at just how awesome this guy was. Well, uh, Melier was born in Paris in 1861. And he was uh, just a very creative guy and very artistic at a very young age. Uh, he was uh, reprimanded for drawing on his books at school. And uh, also, as he grew a little older, he um, he would build puppet theaters and later on marionettes. But then he discovered stage magic and he was entranced. And that uh-huh. that culminated in the purchase of the theater Robert Houdin 
And what he did with this with this theater was he created increasingly elaborate little stage plays until he saw a, a demo of, of the of the Lumiere brothers, uh, their cinematograph, that led him uh, into making these mini movies that he would also play. Uh, at his theater, and he became just increasingly obsessed with this. He ultimately produced an astounding 500 movie short- shorts using this new technology, uh, covering everything from drama to historical reenactments, you you name it. Horror cinema? Yeah, actually, he was one of the very first pioneers of, uh, of horror cinema, cr- creating one of the earliest horror movies in the late 1800s. I think it was oh. called The Haunted Castle, so that, that also got my attention. And this guy wasn't just, you know, a director or whatever. He was an actor, a director, a producer, a writer, set and costume designer, set painter. And also, of course, he was the inventor of many, uh, and many, many of the special effects. And this whole thing came about essentially from an epiphany that he had. He was filming in the street uh, when his camera jammed. And he quickly got the camera going, but when he looked at the developed film later, he noticed that various vehicles and people on the street magically became other vehicles and other people. Now, of course, what he had done is, you know, the the, the tape stopped rolling, the traffic kept moving. When he got it going again, everything seemed to change. And of course, that's just that's just you know special effects one hundred and one. We were doing that with our Super Eight camera with Dad, guys, Joe, Steve, yeah, yeah. Jay. Remember, years and years ago, he would turn it off. He'd make people disappear. But you know, over a hundred years ago, <laughs> at, the, at the dawn of of cinema, nobody was really thinking of that. And he had essentially he independently discovered that. Uh, I think um, Edison had uh, discovered a similar idea. Uh, a little bit earlier than him, but I don't think he he didn't do nearly as much as um, as Melier did. And uh, this is called this is called the stop trick. Uh, it's also called locking off or g- the genie cut, uh, which is which is pretty mm-hmm. funny. Yeah, I dream yeah, of genie exactly, when she blinks out. Exactly. <laughs> so what happened? The reason this was an epiphany for him is because he realized that film can be used to bend space and time and warp reality in ways that stage could never never do. So over the years, he came up with countless techniques and illusions many have never, never before seen, like double and multiple exposures, time lapse, split screen, dissolves, and a host of other ideas that that he came up with. One example had eight versions, or I think it was seven versions of him on the screen at once. It was, it was the name of it. I think was like a one man band. So he was one, it was one person playing seven different characters on screen at the same time. Which is what a hundred years before Eddie Murphy did it in his uh, in his yeah. famous string of movies, a uh, hundred years. Mm-hmm. But many would argue that his magnum opus was his movie A Trip to the Moon from 1902, which pulled together uh, many of the innovations that that he had made. And uh, that's the one you'll remember, the one where a cannon shoots a ship, a spaceship to the moon, which hits the oh, yeah. which, which hits the moon, <laughs> and you know the the moon has a face, and the, this rocket ship hits it in the eye. So uh, it lodges that, in its right. Eye. <laughs> I mean, guys, I mean that is such an iconic image, isn't it? No film history retrospective would ever dare leave that that one image or that that little snippet of five seconds out. Yeah, it's like it's one of those so things iconic. Yeah, I've seen it like a hundred times every time. You're right, right, exactly. Yeah. And, but not many people though know who made it. Or have or have seen no. have seen more than just a few seconds of that. I think that was something like a, a twenty or thirty minute actual little mini movie. And but don't forget that was the first science fiction movie that was ever made, and this guy was responsible for that. So um, it was a passing fad. That'll never yeah right. Uh, so Millier was uh, arguably 
the first true movie artist. This guy was a, a real artist and, wow. uh, and, and one of the biggest technical innovators of his time, influencing many of the movies that all of, of us geeks know and love. I would say, uh, so remember, George, uh, mentioned him to your friends, perhaps when you're discussing reverse cranking cinematographs. Cool. Bob, I know what that is. <laughs> That's the yeah. first time you said one of those. I know what it is. <laughs> you know what reverse cranking is? I do it every night, man. Oh, nice. That reverse cranking is when you, uh, you crank the film backwards so that you can then run it forwards to expose it and do your multiple exposures type of thing. And then cinematograph is a, it's kind of specific, but it's also kind of a catch all for very early, early type of camera. Uh, that they were using. That's what Mr. Burns calls, calls movies. The cinematic <laughs> But isn't it, isn't it interesting that, that they had a hand crank the yeah. actual oh, machine? Yeah. Oh my God. Yeah. Mm-hmm. You, know, you had to have a really, really good inner pace. You know, I guess George Robb would do this very well, but I would be terrible at it. Like just mm-hmm. keeping, keeping a steady pace as you're filming. They would play songs in their head, you know? Yeah. That's how they would the keep tempo. time. They would be, they would yeah. let music be their, t- their metronome basically. All right. So Jay, your news item is actually a swindler's list. Your, your series on scams. That's right. I haven't done one in a long time, but something really juicy came across my desk and I, I wanted to tell you guys about it. Charitable organizations are supposed to do what? Charity. Right. But help people and not profit, not for profit. Yeah. They raise funds and they give as much of that money away to the people that are in need, whatever the particular charity is. So right, I think the assumption, the assumption, Jay, is that, that whatever they give, the vast majority, whether it's what, you know, 60, 70, 80, 90% of that stuff is going to go where you, where you intend it to go. And there's a lot of companies that try to do that, Bob. You know, I want to make sure I say that out of the gate. You know, of course, all charitable organizations are not corrupt, but there are a lot that are. And, you know, if anything, the numbers are growing. You know, let me give you an example. Like you have a lot of cancer foundations and, and children-based foundations. And, you know, so there is a significant corrupt underbelly. Um, I always like that word, the underbelly, you know. Um, it exists <laughs> that exists that, that essentially are existing just to produce money for the top echelon of people. Very similar to the FIFA crowd there. So there's one particular story that I read I thought was was fascinating about this guy named James Reynolds who he used to work for the American Cancer Society in the early 80s and he was a manager of of one of their offices and he was fired for for poor record keeping and he actually stole a vin- a vintage car that had been donated by someone to raise money. So you know the guy donates the car, he steals the car instead of Selling it, you know, or, or auctioning it off and actually giving the money to those that have cancer and are in, in need. Yeah. So the company didn't like that and they let him go. And what he did was he immediately went and started that same year and started his own charitable organization and he called it the Cancer Fund of America. And this was the beginning of several companies that he would start, charity based companies. In May of this year, so fast forwarding quite a number of years, USA's Federal Trade Commission, the FTC, had leveled charges very recently, this month, in fact, against Reynolds and several people who work for him, so the, the, his upper echelon of employees. The FTC stated that the organization had stole, had stolen $187 million uh, <laughs> between 2008 and 2012. And, and the, that money was collected as donations. They spent the money on a shitload of things. High salaries for friends and family, expensive trips, new cars, 
college tuitions, luxury cruises, sporting events, concert tickets, and a lot of other stuff like mundane things like gym memberships and, and dating site memberships and all stuff. You know, they're spending company money like crazy. They actually only turned around and donated 3% of the, no, the do, collected donations. Ugh. 3%. Three. And their scam was very simple. If you think about it, they, they sent patients things that were donated to the organization and kept most of the cash. So listen to this particular story. There was a 67-year-old cancer patient who was dying. His wife called the organization for help, and they ended up receiving a box filled with cups, paper plates, napkins, and some kids' toys, all of which- Thank you. That's helpful. Was reported to have been donated to the this cancer foundation. They didn't actually spend money. They just turned around and resent stuff that was given to the organization. This guy's wife, you know, of course he died very soon after this, but his wife literally threw the box in the garbage. You know, it was Mm -hmm. like, and they, and they, and they both took it like it was a slap in the face. Like how horrible can this, you know, disconnected can this company be sending them paper plates and napkins? Oh yeah, this guy's dying of cancer and, and he needs paper plates. Other lies that came from, from Reynolds and his crew included things like, um, you know, they, they said that they, this is what they were telling the government or reporting to the IRS, that they were giving out urgent pain, urgent pain medication to critically ill cancer patients, right? The medication ended up being ibuprofen, you know, over the counter medication. Very, very inexpensive. Oh my God. Other services they claimed to provide were like free rides to patients to, to and from chemotherapy. Guess what? Didn't exist. No free rides. They, the whole thing was a lie. The proverbial ride. His, Reynolds' other company, um, the Breast Cancer Society, they claimed that they shipped $36 million in medical supplies overseas to those in need back in 2011. IRS investigated, found out mm-hmm. none of those things that they said that they shipped were ever purchased by the company. The, the Breast Cancer Society never purchased the $36 million worth of stuff, so therefore they, they kept the money. They were just lying to the government. His scam was simple and elegant, but it, you know I don't want to... F- mislead you it was elaborate in a lot of ways as well you know he was very clever in in what he was doing he was preying on the elderly so what would happen would be he would his telemarketers would find someone that ends up making a donation it was very likely that they were going to be elderly and then they would call back representing other companies this you know Reynolds other companies and keep hitting them up for donations and a lot of times these people could not afford to give donations they were they were Sweet talked into it, literally like fast talked into making the donations. And then a lot of times these people were not even sure what was happening. Extremely elderly people that are getting, you know, government money just to survive and didn't really understand what was taking place over the phone. You know, they, they, who knows what kind of illegitimate conversations that they had. They would pretend to sound, you know, the, the company names were crafted to sound like other companies that are legitimate. And the, the, you know, his, his scams go, you know, continue to go on and on, meaning that he just kept trying all different things. There's a lot of details to this guy's story that I, I found very interesting. So, you know, while, while reading about this, I stumbled on the Tampa Bay Times created a, a list of the top, the, the worst charities, America's worst charities, right? So this is tampabay.com where you can find this. And man, do you want to get mad? If you do, yeah, yeah, go, I do. Go to this website. So that you know, several of Reynolds' companies are in this list, but there, there's a top 
you know, there's 48 people, 48 companies on this list. Like the number one is called the Kids Wish Network, right? So you can go to the website and take a look that they raised 137.9 million. They paid uh, out 2.5% of the 137 million. Um, and then if you click in and you read the details about Jeez. the Kids Wish Network, I mean, just reading it makes me sick to my stomach. The, the scam that they pulled in the name of kids that need help is so horrendous. Just go to the website and read it. You know, then you have the Cancer Fund of America. That's Reynolds Company. The Children's Wish Foundation International. That's number three. Yeah, they do uh, a lot of sound-alikes. Like they're trying to make you think that's the Make-A-Wish Foundation, which is a legitimate yes. charity. Uh-huh. You know, the, the uh-huh. Firefighters Charitable Foundation, number four, International Union of Police Associations, AFL-CIO. You know, and you read the percentages, you know, 1%, 7%, 0.5%, 2.2% of the actual monies taken in were donated to anyone in need. And they're taking in tens of millions of dollars. All all of those companies that I listed, the top five, um, were above 60000 and and way up, you know, from sixty thousand to one hundred thirty-seven. I'm sorry, sixty million to one hundred thirty-seven million dollars taken in, and they're giving away, you know, fractions of the money. Yeah, you know, lesson learned. I'm sure a lot of of our listeners already knew this, but you got to be very careful. Please do investigate any any company that you're going to donate money to. Please investigate it. Um, the resources are there online for you to find it. Um, you know, you could just type in the name of the company or type in. Um, the name of the company, space, scam, or anything like that. You know, use use keywords like that. That'll help you get other information other than what that company wants you to see. Yeah, but the uh, problem is is the, it's the pressure in the moment donation. You know, where people ask you, "Oh, give to this charity," and you're out somewhere. You know, uh, it's hard to sometimes to say no. But you really, I hate to say this, but you really should only contribute, especially if anything significant to charities that you've investigated. Yeah, you research them yeah. ahead of time, know where you want to make your contributions. Yeah, which means then, which means exactly. then though you're that you're saying no to the out in the fee, to the, the impulse, out, yeah, the impulse yeah. donation cuz yeah, you feel the, yeah. the guilt. You can't donation, check them out, but you don't but have any opportunity to check them out. One good thing to check out is uh, whether they use professional fundraisers, because uh, from what I could tell, a lot of the re- the legit charities don't use professional fundraisers because they cost tons of money. And, uh, they, they, so they do it, you know, they, they do it in house, I guess, and it's a lot cheaper. So that's, it would be a red flag if they have professional fundraisers. But how do you admit it? That's a good point, Bob. It's, what's interesting is a lot of these companies were reported to hire, like the, the, these third party fundraising companies that all they do is run fundraisers. And they would be giving like 70 to 80 to 90% of the donations that were taken in just to pay the fundraising company. If you're running an organization like that, in my opinion, you are a sociopath, right? I mean, that yeah. these, these people, that's, that's beyond just, you know, being unethical. You, you've got to be a real psychopath to do that sort of thing, that level of scam. Yeah. In my opinion. Disgusting. Our interview later on the show is about creationism, so, but I, so I have a creationism news item as well. I wrote uh, a post on my neurological blog last week, and guess who showed up in the comments? Our old uh, friend, Doctor Michael Egnor. Yeah, I love him. Where he, where's he been He's the last the four years? Neuro- creationist neurosurgeon who blogs, uh, or at least writes part time for the Disco Toot. Discovery, <laughs> and he and I have crossed swords <laughs> in the blogosphere quite a few times. Um, have gone after each other 
pretty harshly, actually, but in a good intellectual way, you know, harsh in the intellectual way. But so he shows up in the in the comments to a blog post I wrote about creationism. It, the title was "Creationism: Are We Winning the Battle and Losing the War?" And I was talking about, yeah, we were winning all of our legal cases, but are we actually making any headway in terms of the popular belief in creationism? So anyway, it was interesting. I mean, he was very polite uh, as a commenter on my blog. So um, I engaged him politely. I wanted to see if we could get anywhere. You know, just I'm always willing to engage with somebody who's willing to engage and just to see if I could get him to really spell out his position. Uh, and, you know, some interesting things came out of that that I wanted to talk about. So I do think he's really showing some of at least the the current strategy that U.S. creationists are using. So one of his big arguments is that scientists are using the courts to censor discussion of scientific topics. Really? Yeah. The courts? Yes. So Okay. Well, maybe in public schools, but... Uh, is that what he's referring to? Yeah, he's to, referring or? to the court cases in which, you know, in the U.S., in which the teaching of creationism has been deemed unconstitutional because it's religion. Right. <laughs> you know, no. that that's really pathetic. They Essentially, what? they have had their day in court multiple that's, times, and they've had their asses kicked. You know, it's, it's like arguing that, well, we're not learning any economics in our English class today. We need fair time for economics in English class. What? No. You have, go have an economics class somewhere. Go have a religious class yeah, somewhere. It doesn't belong in a science class. Yeah, obviously. But again, he is trying to say that this specific point is that scientists, any self-respecting scientist shouldn't use the courts to censor scientific discussion. Of course, you know, oh, he, he was totally challenged on multiple levels back there. I had to give him a history lesson to remind him of what actually yes. happened. Uh, How did he, he respond, Steve? He, he really just kept going back to his premise. Yeah. You know, he's like, these are his talking points. Actually, Redden wrote up a follow-up blog hmm. called Creationist Talking Points where I addressed his specific points. That The comments to that blog post are currently at a 331, which is a lot wow. for my blog. Yeah, so people are, I think, are having a, a fun time with him. And he's, he's there. He's still engaging. You know, it's interesting. But he's not backing off. I mean, he's just, he has his talking points and that's it. <laughs> he's just too invested. He's just no way. Well, yeah, yeah, yeah. Gonna... I mean, you, you have to wonder, you know, like how he, how he could maintain that position despite the fact that it's been, in my opinion, utterly eviscerated. But, uh, for example, the, let's look, let's review very quickly the, the yes. landmark cases. Uh, first of all, none of them brought by scientists. You know, they've all yeah. been brought by either uh, parents of children in school systems uh, or school systems or whatever. So if you go, the original cases were for creationists banning the teaching of evolution. Real censorship, right? Yes. They were trying mm -hmm. to censor the teaching of evolution in the public schools. Uh, they essentially lost they're, so, you know, essentially, they are guilty of exactly what Egnor is accusing the scientists of being guilty of. They lost their case in the scientific arena. So then they just decided to go to the legislature and pass a law banning the teaching of evolution. That was declared unconstitutional because it's singling out a scientific theory because it conflicts with religious belief. That violates the Establishment Clause of the First Amendment of the Constitution. Then they went to the creation science approach. Okay, well, we're going to pass laws requ requiring equal time for creation science. And the courts ruled that creation science 
is religious belief and not science. Okay, so then they said, let's teach the controversy. It's controversial whether or not, nope, that doesn't fly either. There is no controversy. It's at the end of the day, you're just trying to teach creation science again, and that's religion. It's not science. So then they went to, I'm, I'm glossing over a lot of details, but the broad brushstrokes are, then they went to intelligent design. This was the really the most recent big case, the Kitzmiller v. Dover from 10 years ago, and the court's uh, ruled that intelligent design is creation science, is religious faith, and therefore the school district can't require that it be taught in the public schools. Uh, the, the smoking gun, if you recall, for that determination was the text that was recommended specifically in the law that was challenged of pandas and people, in yes. which there was a literal cut and paste of creation science for intelligent design. I mean, you don't get a better smoking gun than that. That intelligent design is essentially creation science, and it is. In none of those court cases are scientists trying to censor anything. Their argument is that intelligent design and creation science are not science, that they're religious faith. And the courts have systematically agreed. Talk about revisionist history. He's saying yeah. that, that scientists are censoring and it's the other way around. I know. I mean, he says, he well, I couldn't be more wrong. He says, I disagree with the court decision. That, okay. Oh, good oh, for oh, you. Irrelevant. Good for you. It doesn't mean, it doesn't mean <laughs> that it, it amounts to censorship. It's still, they're, they're not saying don't teach science in the science classroom. Don't teach science we don't want. They're saying this is not science. It's religion. And the courts agreed. Right. And as we pointed out in Kitzmiller v. Dover, the judge in that case, Judge Jones, was a conservative Bush-appointed judge. This is not – you can't say this is any kind of liberal judge or liberal agenda or whatever. Nope. This it, it was such a home run. It's, he nailed it too. You really can't you – know, the burden is really on anybody who's going to disagree with that decision. I mean they had the opportunity to present their case Gee. thoroughly and they failed. You know, so – Gosh. How intellectually dishonest do you have to be to take Egnor's position on it's, the on It's hard to imagine. It's I mean, really. Steve, do you think that his real motivation here is to try to recruit people or like, why why show up on your blog? I don't, I don't know. I don't know what he was trying to accomplish. Board? Board? <laughs> I can only speculate. Better. I really, I honestly don't know. But I don't, I don't think he's trying to recruit from the readers of my blog. That would be rather pointless. But I, I maybe he's looking for fodder. He's, you know, maybe he was hoping I was going to, you know, give him a, give him a good quote, ban him or looking, something or yeah, give him some good quotes. Who right. Knows? Looking to stay relevant somehow. Yeah. I but, uh, no, it's been, you know, I'm very happy that I've been able to set a tone in the comments to my blog. It's still, yes, it's still a blog. Trolls occasionally show up, but my regulars are very good at, you know, being, at engaging politely, but you know, firmly. They don't certainly don't give any quarter, but it's a, it is a good, I think, as good a venue as you can get. A good, uh, you know. Yeah, it's not. I agree. It's not uncomfortable. It's not yeah. threatening. It's it sets yeah, the I right think so. tone. So I'm very happy about that. So in exactly for this reason, because then people like Egner can will stay and engage long enough for me to make him spell out exactly what he's saying, and I think it gives us a little bit of insight. What I think. What I really think is that this is now the Discovery Institute intelligent design talking point. That this is the, this is, again, it's, it is just another iteration of the teach the controversy, which is the, and it's also part of their academic freedom approach and teach the strengths and weaknesses of evolution. You're trying to censor us from teaching the weaknesses of evolution. That, that of course, the, the point that we get to, which is unresolvable, 
uh, because he's not going to change his mind on this, is that we, we disagree over the status of creationism and intelligent design. I don't think that they're science. The, the criticisms of evolution that he brings up are, are, have been destroyed already. They've, they've had their fair day in the court of, uh, scientific opinion, opinion in the arena of science, and they've been rejected because their arguments are not valid. They either misrepresent the evidence or they use faulty logic. Uh, the design inference, for example, is not a legitimate scientific reasoning. It's not even really a falsifiable notion. Uh, they confuse top-down design with bottom-up emergent design, and they make no attempt at distinguishing those two things. And so, okay, you can infer design all you want in nature, but it's a bottom-up evolved design. So that doesn't get you to where you want to go. It's not a criticism of evolution. So the, here's another thing. What, what the, one last point. The other thing that comes out is part of their approach. This is very interesting. So again, they can't teach religion in the public schools. So they they had to argue that their ideas are science, and they've systematically failed. Their ideas are not science. So part of what they're trying to do. I mean, part of what they're trying to do is to whittle it down to you know, like criticisms of evolution, you know, something that's trying to be as devoid yeah. of anything religious as possible. But the problem is it's so intrinsically tied to a religious agenda that the courts aren't buying it. And I hope that, that that's going to keep Good. up. But the other thing that they're trying to do, it's like, okay, if creation science and intelligent design are not science, the problem is with science. So let's change, let's redefine Science. And that's the other thing oh that Egnor is trying to do and that others, you know, at the Disco Tutor are trying to do by, by including essentially changing the underlying metaphysical philosophical assumptions of science, which are essentially methodological naturalism, right? That yeah. stuff has to be real and you have to have cause and effect and you can't use magical supernatural oh, explanations because they're not <laughs> falsifiable. So he's saying, well, what, you know, their, their whole shtick is, well, why are, why is science rigging the game, you know, and (laughs) they're (laughs) excluding a priori these supernatural explanations. Like, and this was actually addressed in the Judge Jones decision at, at Kitzmiller v. Dover. Jones said that that battle had its day too, and that philosophers of science figured out 150 freaking years ago. That science has to be based on methodological naturalism. You can't refight that philosophical fight in the courtroom, but that's what they're trying to do. They're trying to go back a couple of centuries and refight the philosophical and scientific battles that they've already lost. And, and they're the ones who are trying to use the courtroom to fight these scientific fights they've already lost. And they're the ones who are trying to censor. But but they have their narrative. This is their new narrative. This is their evolved, if you will, or iterated narrative. And it was interesting to see Egnor representing it, I think, as eloquently as it can be represented, you know, in the comments to my blog. No one there, of course, was buying it. But, I mean, I think I've, I have a much better understanding of exactly their how they're proceeding, you know, in their attacks on evolution. So uh, the, the creationists, are are they winning – the war essentially because they are putting up this fight even though it's futile even though it's not probably not going to go anywhere they're just putting on essentially this this performance essentially for their uh, for, for the red meat what i think audience. is they're holding the line within their cultural arenas so core, yeah. in the in the south in 
largely fundamentalist regions of the country where belief in creationism is somewhere in the 40s percent, they're holding the line. That percentage has not changed over the last 30 years because they are successfully watering down or avoiding the teaching of evolution. So generations of people are being brought up who don't understand evolution. They grow up to be creationists who then keep the whole system going. So, yeah, so creationism Mm -hmm. is completely, um, I think, endemic in those areas, and they've been successful in preventing us from making any progress at that number. The rest of society, I think, the other 60% or whatever, uh, I think we're making progress there, but not we're not we're not cracking that base, you know, of creationists. <sighs> so, <laughs> <laughs> collective groan. They are trying to gain ground. You know, this isn't them sitting around going, "We're just going to hold this line indefinitely." I mean, I, I think. Oh, they are, they want to gain ga- ground, but I think they're holding their ground. Is, is what the stats sh- show. Okay. What they suggest. Yeah, I agree. All right, Evan, you're going to give us a quick one about, uh, well, demonology online or something like that. <laughs> the latest, the latest variation of, of it. And it's, it's like gone crazy viral in the, just the last few days. So it's called the Charlie Charlie Challenge. Did is that like the cinnamon challenge? Yeah. What is that? I heard the bucket uh, ice bucket challenge. It is the latest internet craze called the Charlie Charlie Challenge. You what you what people are doing is they're using two pencils that balance at the at the cross yep. point right in the middle, and you put it on a sheet of paper, and you're and supposedly it summons an alleged Mexican demon, in which you say, "Charlie Charlie, are you there? Charlie Charlie, can you come out to play?" And what happens is the pencil that's sitting on top of the other pencil will perhaps, uh, if given the right circumstances, start to move and the pointer will sort of point to one of the words yes or no in any of the four squares that you've written down on your paper. It is the, I guess, the latest machination of uh, Ouija board, uh, I guess, is what you can kind of compare it to, even though there's no planchette and you don't put your fingers on it to move it. Uh, the pencils just, you know, because of gravity <laughs> and the, how they're precariously perched, uh, the top pencil, it will, it will eventually move on its own. Or but if it's somebody because- blows on it slightly. How many people has Charlie Charlie killed? <laughs> it's unknown at this time. However, however, people have been recording their experience with playing that game and tweeting it. That's the craze right now, and it's been uh, – these tweets have accumulated right now more than 1.8 million of them and counting. 1.8 million. That's one busy demon. He must be popping all over the place. He's all over the place. Charlie's, at, Charlie's all around us, He's man. making more <laughs> making more appearances than Jesus on tortillas or something. However, the only thing perhaps crazier than this is that – uh, apparently there are Catholic priests who are issuing urgent warnings over the dangers of summoning demons and playing games such as this. So what you have is essentially this, uh, <laughs> silly game that's going on. And of course, uh, you leave it to the, uh, people in the church to step in and give it uh, a life of its own by, uh, saying, yes, this stuff is real. It can happen. You can summon a demon. Stop doing this. Oh boy. So it's ba- dumb to dumber is essentially what's going on here. So that's the latest craze happening on the internet. Uh, you can look up uh, Charlie Charlie. Uh, the hashtag is Charlie Charlie Challenge and go and look at some of the funny videos that are out there and people are already doing like parodies of it. Yeah. And, you know, there people are lying over each other in the shapes of crosses and moving across each other and other skits and sketches yeah, and I mean, sketches and things like that. To the kids, so. it's a silly game. And then the priests have to embarrass themselves by taking it seriously. Uh. 
I mean, gosh. But Steve, is... that's what the demons want you to do. They want you to not <laughs> believe them for real. It's all about the deception, Steve. They want people to make fun. They want them to lighten it up. And what they're going to, what they're doing is they're planning an apocalypse. Mm-hmm. Oh. Yes, it's well, coming. I didn't realize it was that serious. Yes. Evan, is this all a viral marketing campaign for like the new Poltergeist movie or something? Ah, oh, interesting. Yeah, that'd interesting be cool. idea, Steve. You'd never know. You'd never you'd, know. You'd, <laughs> you'd never know. But, you know, hey, who can argue with 1.8 million tweets? All right, Jay, who's that noisy? Who? Let's see if we can solve Thank this one. Thank you. Yes, I love who's that noisy. All right, so last hmm. week, you heard a very interesting sound. What the hell was that? Any ideas, wow. guys? I don't know. No. <laughs> I really don't know. Was, I, I thought that was so weird, right? So, guys, that actually is a bird. A oh, liar bird. Uh, no. Liar! Oh. Nope. Not a liar uh, bird? What nope, bird? that is a curl-crested jay. And it's oh, native. Jay. It's native to South America. A lot of bir- a lot of noisy birds are called jays. Um, the curl-crested jay, <laughs> it lives in the that particular bird, that specific bird that you heard. That one is a... Criadoro, it's, it lives at the Criadoro Anca Pintada Breeding Center and it's mimicking a video game. Somebody oh. playing a video game. Yep. Re-listen, wow. re-listen to it now and you'll, it'll blow your mind that that is actually a video game. You can hear like the video game voice, you know, like the mm-hmm. character talking and you can hear the guns and lasers and whatnot. I just thought it was incredible. That bird is um, exceptionally good at mimicking. If the bird had said, elf needs food badly, I would have definitely gotten that one. So nobody guessed it. Nobody Ooh. got it. Now, yeah. well, no. Of course. Isn't Who the hell's going to get that? I don't know. I mean, there's a lot of people out there, Bob. That, you know, maybe the person yeah, true. That, um, that made the that recording. Made the recording. <laughs> sure. All right, guys. I um for some reason because of the um the Edison dolls I've been trying to find creepy things yeah. and I I had a listener send in something extraordinarily creepy. Cool. Oh, you're going to It's going to give me nightmares. It's yeah. this is creepy. That's a weird one, Jay. I love how creepy it is. Something technological? Yeah. Isn't that creepy? Yeah. So thank you, Ian, for sending that in, and I will reveal next week. Send in your uh, answers if you have any guesses at uh, WTN at theskepticsguide.org. All right. One quick email before we go on to our interview. Uh, This one comes from Nancy from Fort Saskatchewan, Alberta. And Nancy writes, Recently we put up a bird feeder in our yard. This prompted a discussion between myself and my husband about the effect of bird feeders on a bird population. I have heard that if you start feeding birds, you should not stop as the birds learn to rely on the constant food supply and, if it is removed, have difficulty obtaining food the usual way. My thinking is that the easily obtained energy birds receive via the feeders is almost always a benefit as they do not have to exert a lot of energy obtaining it. And 
if it is no longer there, they have still had the benefit of that easy food energy. Steve, before you give your yes. answer, which I'm sure is very accurate, let me tell you what I think it is without doing any research, okay? Okay, just off the top of your head. My answer is that when you put the food out there, you're actually increasing the bird population, and when you take the food away, those birds die. The real answer is a lot more complicated, and the short answer is that um, this is still an area of active research. It's a lot. It's difficult to sort out all of the ecological effects of supplemental feeding, of putting extra bird seed and stuff out there for birds. There is so, some studies show that uh, wild birds will still obtain most of their food from natural sources, even when there are bird feeders out there in the in the area. So you have to put out quite a bit of seed to have a significant effect on the local population. But, you know, if a lot of people are putting out bird feeders and keeping them full, that could get to the point where that's significantly affecting the amount of food that's out there in the environment. And yeah, that can increase bird populations. But there's a lot of unintended consequences. It also depends on when you feed them. So winter feeding has the most profound effect because that's when food supplies are at their lowest. Uh, a lot of birds starve over the winter uh, or just barely survive. And if you provide lots of food, then you can have a significant effect uh, that it allows more birds to survive the winter. Birds survive fatter and healthier. A number of studies show that birds will lay more eggs and will lay them earlier if they were winter fed. Uh, although there's a couple of studies which showed the opposite, that birds were laying fewer eggs if they were winter fed. But the researchers suspect that's because weaker birds survived and therefore they were dragging down the average. They normally would have been dead and they wouldn't have been there in the, in the spring laying eggs. You know what I mean? So that's just an artifact uh, of the weaker birds surviving and then dragging down the average in terms of number of eggs and the health of the chicks. Um, but most studies show that, yeah, winter feeding actually will increase and egg laying and make it early. All right. Lots of ecological effects. First of all, one legitimate concern is that by doing significant amounts of feeding, you are going to allow uh, for uh, seed feeding species to benefit above and beyond non-seed feeding species um, or whatever you're feeding. So I should point out that seeds are only one kind of food. I actually put out seeds and nectar for hummingbirds and the small seeds for finches and suet for woodpeckers and other birds. And sometimes in the summer, I even put out grape jelly and fruit for the orioles and for other birds. So I try to mix it up as much as I can because you see a better variety of birds and, you, and you're not just supporting only, only one type of feeder. But, you know, I don't, you know, I can't have any effect on insect feeders or worm feeders, you know. So there are studies which show that seed feeder species will benefit at the expense of other species because they take up their nesting locations. Even though they're not competing for food, they are competing for nesting sites and they can drive down the population of other species. And so you should pay a little bit of attention to what, what kinds of birds are coming to your feeder. Two of the most notorious invasive species in North America are seed feeders, house sparrows and European starlings. And those are not only invasive species, they do displace local species by 
pushing them out of their nests. They're very aggressive. That's what partly why they're, you know, they're invasive. So we should kill them, right? We just shoot I, them? Yeah, I think it's perfectly okay. reasonable. I'm serious. I think it's perfectly reasonable to cull European starlings and, mm. uh, house sparrows. Wow. I was, I was kidding, man. No, like, but I think it's perfectly reasonable to do that. You know, I, I, a bird, I think somebody who listens to our show is like, who's a bird researcher says whenever they find a European starling in their nets, they kill them. Every other bird they release, if it's a European starling, they kill it. They're, they are really bad. They're really bad. Uh, and they don't belong here, but you know, obviously it's too late for that now. Uh, but they, they really do displace, they're, they're driving down bird diversity. So bird watchers hate them, right? Ah, they're, yes. they're causing the exact uh, opposite yeah, of what well. we want. So if, if you're feeding them with your seed, you're actually exacerbating the problem, depending on how much seed you're putting out there. Bob, imagine if, um, there was some species of bird that made it like less likely that you're going to like have fun at Halloween. <laughs> You'd be like out there killing them, right? Uh, Are you kidding? I would be in re- July. I would be recruiting people to join <laughs> yeah. me in the destruction. All right, so listen to this. This is where this is how complicated it gets. You're also benefiting species which stay <laughs> in the area versus species which migrate to non-populated areas, right? So they're coming from areas that are not populated. And therefore, they're not being fed. They're not being supplemented. Uh, and then they're competing with birds who have been supplemented all winter or whatever. So the, the non-migrating birds get a jump, you know, and, and they have an advantage over the migrating birds. So Steve, if the European starling lowered the number of blasters in the world, I would kill them. <laughs> Jesus Christ. <laughs> yeah. But yeah they, they, I've seen videos of flocks of, of must be hundreds of thousands of starlings and they, they could also like Jeez. wreck. Crops and stuff. I mean, they're, they're a pest. They're wow. A pest they're bad, species. bad yeah. news, man. Got to go. Gotta they go. got here. They got to North America because some jackass a hundred years ago released two of them in Central Park uh. in New York City because he oh, thought, yeah. he thought that Central Park should have every bird mentioned in Shakespeare. And so he released what? these species in, in here and, and created a massive problem. And that man's name was Charlie Charlie. <laughs> <laughs> Charlie. Um, Okay, so another study found that mm. if you winter feed the birds, they lay their eggs early, and then when the chicks hatch, it's too early, and the they, food there's not freeze. there's not enough food for them because the food mm. they're, they're they're mistimed to the food supply. So you know the bottom line is yes, it can have an impact on the ecosystem of the of local birds, but it's proportional to how much the birds are being fed. I think if you, you know, if you're putting out one little feeder and, you know, occasionally filling it to attract birds to your house so that you could see them, I wouldn't worry about it. Um, we don't really, we haven't really sorted out all of the effects. And I think it's really mainly depends on the volume of seed that's being put out in a, in one local specific area. I do think if you're going to feed, I, I do recommend that you put out a lot of different kind of food because first of all, you get a much greater variety of birds. Plus you're also spreading out the effect. You know, you're not just favoring the seed, one type of seed feeders, for example. And it's not that hard to occasionally, you know, fill a few different types of feeders. I especially enjoy the, uh, the nectar in the summer. You get to see the hummingbirds come to the nectar feeder. Those are really, really cool. All right. So thanks for the question. Um, you know, you, you know, you're always going to bait me with a good birding question, but it's actually a very interesting question that we haven't fully answered yet. And the effects are complicated, but I, Personally, I wouldn't let you let it stop you from putting out a little bit of seed so you could see some of your backyard birds. Right. So the takeaway is put the seed out, kill whatever birds show up. 
<laughs> if they're starlings or have sparrows. All right, let's go on with our interview. We are joined now by Paul Braderman. Paul, welcome to The Skeptic's Guide. Hi, thank you. I'm delighted to be here tonight. And Paul is the a committee member for the British Centre for Science Education and the science advisor to the Scottish Secular Society. Uh, you are a retired chemistry professor and a science writer. I know you contribute to The Panda's Thumb and a lot of other uh, skeptical and secular outlets. So again, thank you for joining us. And you're going to talk to us this evening about creationism in the UK, but specifically in Scotland. So there's uh, been some interesting developments. Right. Okay, thank you. Well, firstly, a very big difference between the UK as a whole and the United States, and that is that in the US, of course, you have separation of church and state, and it's wrong, and any religious activity in publicly funded schools is officially at least unconstitutional. Here we've got almost the opposite situation. Our school system arose from a merger of of parish and church systems and the position of religion in British society is deeply embedded. Schools have chaplains, they have religious observance services, they have what's called religious education, which is supposedly education about religion, but all too often is indoctrination into a religion. We're in favor of the former, but very much against the latter. I should mention, by the way, Scottish Secular Society, you can find out all about us on Facebook, is a faith-neutral organization concerned about the abuse of religious privilege, in particular in Scotland. Education in Scotland is separate from education in England. It's what's called a devolved power, and it's looked after here by the Scottish Parliament based in Holyrood. What brought all this to a head was a scandal at one particular school, Kirktonholm, near Glasgow, where kids were sent home from school assembly with books saying that evolution was a lie, that people only believed in it as an excuse of personal wickedness, that the science was all in favor of six-day creation, and actually with pictures of dinosaurs being used as farm animals. Mm -hmm. You can find much more about that on my own blog if you just look up Paul Braderman WordPress. Anyway. Personal wickedness, I like that. I like being personally <laughs> wicked. All <laughs> oh, right. Okay, well, we're, we're all obviously personally very wicked. Yes. <laughs> At this point, we asked the Scottish Government, as we had repeatedly been asking the Scottish Government, to give clear guidance saying that saying that evolution should not be taught in schools, and they refused to do so. Another thing that had led up to this was that in 2010, we got our own Center for Intelligent Design, which is a kind of satellite of the Discovery Institute, although it claims not to be. And it's rather different from the Discovery Institute. Discovery Institute, as you know, are, is full of old world creationists, but their message resonates over here in particular with hardline biblical literalists and the people involved with the Center for Intelligent Design tend to be young earth creationists. 
that also tends to tie up with beliefs that still linger in the highland, in the periphery of the Highlands and the Outer Hebrides in particular, which turns out to be relevant. The Scottish government refused to give such guidance on the grounds that the curriculum is a matter for the teachers and therefore government should not intervene and has full confidence in them and so on and so forth. Under pressure it did say that creationism was not part of the syllabus. Our petition, the Scottish petition system, is an interesting, rather open one. Petition, if it gets enough weight, and we had three Nobel Prize winners behind us, petition with enough weight behind it goes in front of the Public Petitions Committee who consider it, decide what to do with it. In this case, after a very interesting confrontation with them, in which I actually insulted one of the members of the Scottish Parliament who seemed to be questioning the science. I turned around and said that scientifically there was no doubt about it. He was second cousin to a monkey and fourth cousin to a mushroom. I don't think he was (laughs) amused, but the other members of the committee were. Anyway, I'm amused. (laughs) They agreed to collect further evidence at that stage, and among the bodies that we persuaded to write was was the Society for Biology which is the United Kingdom's largest professional association of biologists, they wrote some very clear language saying that saying that creationism was not science and should not be taught in science classes. They also said very interestingly that when it came up elsewhere, it should be sympathetically discussed, but with due respect to the science. The Scottish government, when first written to, refused to give that kind of language. They simply reiterated what said before, it's not in the syllabus and we trust our teachers. Just after their letter, the letter from the Society for Biology arrived, the committee in the light of that and other letters agreed to forward the petition to a further committee, the Education and Culture Committee, which is exactly the path that we wanted for it. The Education and Culture Committee then, in turn, asked for evidence from the Scottish Government and others. Meantime, our petition had generated a great deal of publicity, including people writing to the members of the Scottish Parliament, and we had in our hands at this stage, we had a letter from the responsible minister to a member of the Scottish Parliament using the language borrowed from the Society for Biology, that creationism should not be taught in science classes. Now, this may sound like a small change, but in fact, it's a major shift. The government, while pretending that it's merely clarifying its previous guidance, which isn't, of course, guidance at all, is actually issuing new guidance, and while asserting that the teachers are free to use their own judgment, is telling them exactly how to use it. Mm-hmm. So. We're feeling very pleased, we're feeling very pleased with that. The petitions committee in turn wrote to the Scottish government saying, do you really mean what you said in this letter to this particular member of parliament because it's different? Unstated because it's different, what goes beyond what you said earlier. The Scottish government wrote back repeating the language that we were looking for. And in the light of that, the Education Committee decided to close the petition Mm -hmm. on the grounds, essentially, that it had done its job. Now, 
what's important here is not what appears on the surface. It's quite true that it had indeed been almost unheard of for anyone in the Scottish school to be so unprofessional as to teach creationism as science. And yet creationism is being taught as fact all over the Scottish educational system, mainly through extracurricular activities, church-based bodies coming into the schools. We have a veritable invasion from across the pond of bodies that draw their inspiration from Southern Baptist and similar rather similar, how should we put it politely? No, let's not be polite. Some similar <laughs> boneheaded, utterly boneheaded groups. Yeah, sorry about that. <laughs> yeah. It sounds yeah. like we have our fingerprints on that somehow. Yeah, well, yeah. Well, 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 things are sort of bouncing to and fro. They, I mean, the, the people we're talking about draw their inspiration from the Westminster Confession, which is 17th century Scots Calvinism. And okay. so it's found, it's found fertile soil bouncing first one way over to you and then back, then back to us across, back to us across the pond. The scandal at Kirkton Home I mentioned earlier turns out that for eight years we'd had the head had invited in members of an extreme sect called Churches of Christ and the particular volumes were produced by some bodies called called Apologetics Press. If you look them up and see what they say, it really really will call you, really will curl your hair. The way this is going to play out now, the battleground is going to shift, I think, inevitably to what's taught under the aegis of religious education. The official position of religious education is that creationism should be discussed. And after all, if you're discussing Christianity, that is one Christian view you should discuss, should be discussed, but not promoted. And the significance of this apparently minuscule change in language is that this alters the entire framework about what counts as discussion and what counts as promotion. And if it is not to be taught as science, the implication is that in religious education as well and elsewhere in all school activity, it should not be presented as scientifically factual. And that's the reason why we really, really do believe that we've won. We've got a lot of publicity out of this. So essentially, that's where we are, and that's why we're feeling very pleased with ourselves tonight. Okay, so is there some sort of, uh, let's take it from the other perspective, what are they? What are the creationists going to do now? What's their next move? Are they going to appeal this somehow? Or are they going to just continue to, say, defy this uh, interpretation of what's going on and try try to ballot it out in the courts, something like that? Well, it's been quite, it's been quite amusing. The moderator of the Free Church of Scotland, which is a sort of extremist sect, Free Church of Scotland's got a noble history. It was at one time most liberal of the Scottish churches. Now it's a mere rump. And the moderator has actually completely misconstrued the situation. So have some of the newspapers at various stages. Early on in the procedure, the first Scottish government letter, which I referred to, which was rather unsatisfactory, he crowed about how our petition had been thrown out. And now he's turning around and saying the petition was completely unnecessary because we haven't shown any cases of creationism being taught as science. So he's gone from 
has gone from saying that we lost and saying we were wrong to saying that nothing's happened anyway. That's going to be his party line. The Church of Scotland is split deeply between what you might call conservative and liberal theologically and therefore the way true to Church of Scotland tradition is avoiding saying anything at all on the matter. We are, we are confident that creationist individual groups will carry on going on into, going into schools and will carry on believing, carry on doing more or less what they've been doing. We're just trying to get parents, teachers who are offended by this, others who are aware of what's going on to send us, if you'll pardon the expression, chapter and verse so that we can then very specifically complain to the local authorities involved and turn around and say, well, if it, if you can't teach it as science because it isn't true, then surely you can't turn around and teach it in religious education because to do that will be to make both religion and science into a mockery. So if I could recap to make sure I understand the situation, what you have is guidance from the Minister of Education. Is that the right title? Minister for Schools and Learning. He's a sort of sub-minister for the Minister for Education. Okay. The way that this is done, there's a body called the Scottish Qualifications Authority, which sets the syllabus in collaboration with another group called Education Scotland. These are sort of hands-on, they're what we call quangos, quasi-non-government organizations, within which, which act under guidance from the government, but with a large measure of autonomy. And the government does steer them while doing its very best to pretend not to do so. So does this word from the minister have the force of law, or is it just a really strong suggestion? I don't think it's a matter of law. But I do think that anyone who violated, who went against this, would be behaving themselves unprofessionally with possible grave implications for them. They'll lose their job, potentially. Uh, Right, yeah. Yeah, they get at any rate, they get immediately a reprimand and a prospect of losing their job. And we also got, as part of this language, part of the language in the letter, an assurance from the minister that the school inspectorate would be looking out for this. Mm -hmm. Now, the school inspectorate has always officially been looking out for this, but what is new is the minister admits that concerns have been raised. In other words, that there is something that needs looking out for. Mm -hmm. So the message, I think, there is going to really reverberate among among school teachers. Right. And because there isn't a constitutional separation of church and, and state, uh, they, teachers can teach, schools can teach religion in their school, and in fact they do. So that's now the latest battleground is whether or not they can teach creationism. They can certainly teach about it, but you're saying you're, you're trying to make it well established that they can't promote it as true and certainly shouldn't promote it as science, even if they can't teach about it. Yeah, exactly. There are two very separate religious activities. There's a religious observance, which is school prayers, and quite a lot of parents opt their kids, or quite a lot of kids opt themselves out of this. That is, that is practice of a religion. Religious education is supposedly even-handed, and the language saying it should not be promoted has been 
buried in some parliamentary file for a long, long time, but now we will assuredly be blowing the dust off it. The other thing that we're doing is religious education teachers are really in an impossible situation. They have to cover and be show awareness of so many things. So... I and a group of friends are in the process of preparing materials which we're going to actually offer to religious education teachers, giving the background of this. Quite laudably, the religious education people don't want to tell kids how to make up their minds, but nonetheless, they should be sort of completely aware of what the, what the evidence is and completely aware of the vacuity the falsehood, in fact, of the various creationist arguments, which they will be learning about and should be learning about as long as that's part of the course. All right. Well, Paul, thank you so much. Thank you for the work that you're doing over there. It sounds like you guys have scored a tremendous victory. We applaud you. Uh, and thanks for getting us up to speed on the situation over there. Okay. Thank you for having me. It's time for Science or Fiction. Each week I come up with three science news items or facts, two real and one fake. And I challenge my panel of skeptics to tell me which one they think is fictitious. Are you guys ready for this week? Did I sweep you guys last week? I think I swept you last week. I, remember. I don't I remember. Heard, it was a whole week from. ago. What do you expect? Yeah. All right. Well, let's see how you do this week. This is the internet. Memory is short. That's right. <laughs> but the internet's forever. Item number one. Biologists have engineered double helix DNA that has six instead of four nucleotides. Item number two, recent research suggests that infants are able to understand abstract relationships even before they develop language. And item number three, Italian physicists have announced the discovery of the Majoranon, the first elementary particle that is its own antiparticle. Evan, go first. Double helix DNA that has six instead of four nucleotides. A, G, C, T. I wonder what the other letters are. Are they, um, they would be P and W. Uh, that's interesting. Uh, yeah, you know what? I think that one's right. I mean, you know, you can make a four-assed monkey according to creators of South Park, so why can't you do this? I mean, you could, you know, anything, you can grow it in a lab or conceive it. Doesn't mean it's gonna live. Um, next. Infants are able to understand abstract relationships even before they develop language. Well, I guess it depends. Uh, I have uh, abstract relationships. Uh, I'm leaning to say that this one's going to be science. Uh, learning all sorts of things about what infants are doing, you know, hell in the womb. I mean, you know, they're making faces and they're laughing and they're doing calculus. And they're, uh, the last one. Uh, where the Italian physicists have announced the discovery of the Majoranon, the first elementary particle that is its own antiparticle. Huh? Uh, how could a particle be its own antiparticle? I really don't understand this one. I would like to think that one's going to be wind up being the fiction, but I, uh, well, I'll go against my instinct about the abstract relationships for the. Um, infants i think i'm i'm extrapolating too much from all this stuff that uh the unborn are doing in the womb to what's happening as infants out of the womb and i think i'm making a false analogy there sort of i'm going to say that one's fiction okay jay 
All right, so the biologist one um, creating the uh, altered DNA, so six instead of four nucleotides. I mean, can they just build it? I mean, maybe they just built it. I guess that that's that's how they did it. If they did do it, um, I mean, but you know, just having it be built in a petri dish is one thing. Hmm, that's interesting. The second one about the infants understanding abstract relationships. You know, uh, my my two and a half year old son had a lot of stuff going on way before he could talk, and, and when he started to talk, my wife and I realized that. You know, he was picking up on a lot of things. Like as an example, he had a very strong fear of the uh, the smoke detector in our house because the crazy noise that it makes every once in a while when we cook. Um, and he told us when he when he started to be able to talk, he, he told us, and we we knew that he there was a connection between those. You know, seeing him get scared and then knowing later on that he actually was very scared of it. You know, that being said, I I wouldn't doubt that that toddlers. Infants, well, infants, eh, it's different. Infants versus toddlers, too. Understand abstract relationships. Huh, that's interesting. Okay, that one, I'm leaning for that one to be science. The last one about the discovery of majorinanon, majorinon, majorinon, elementary particle, that it's its own antiparticle. So meaning that um, this particle cannot come in contact with an, another particle of the same kind because it'll they'll cancel each other out. I'm going to say that that particle does not exist. That is the fiction. I don't think that's the way things work. Okay, Bob. Let's see. Yeah, I'll start with the uh, Majoranon. I, I have read about this in the past, and I also have read about ideas about a particle being its own antiparticle, which at first seems, yeah, I agree with Evan. It sounds kind of crazy. How, how can that be? I don't remember too many details. Just pretty much what I've what I've stated. So so basically, they actually found it, and that will be good. That will be great. This does have some basis in uh, things that I've read in the past. So I may tentatively go with that one as science. The abstract relationships for babies, sure. I mean, that's not a surprise at all. I mean, um, yeah. I mean, shit. Maybe that's just maybe that's just too easy. But um, I think uh, the biggest problem I have was is with the uh, the engineered double helix. You having two new nucleotides. Yeah, I've, I've read about that in the past as well. The scientists trying to find that. Uh, the thing is though, uh, you know, can it integrate with the other nucleotides? Will it form, you know, a nice clean double helix, that kind of stuff? And I, you know, I wouldn't be surprised if they actually found some that nucle- two new nucleotides that could play well with the others. But I, I don't think we're at the point where I don't think they've, uh, They've passed that Rubicon yet. I don't think they have actually created a, uh, a DNA with six nucleotides. I, I think that sound, that seems a little bit too advanced, and I would have been a little bit surprised if I had missed it. So for that reason, I'm going to say that one's fiction. Okay, so you guys are all divided. And there you you can't win. In this o- only in this game, yeah. So <laughs> okay. uh, there's no reason for me not to take these in order then, I guess. So we'll oh, start boy. with the first one. Oh, boy. oh, oh crap. Uh, we all well, just have wrong. engineered double helix <laughs> DNA that has six instead of four nucleotides. Bob, you think this one is the fiction, and this one is science. Ooh. <sighs> they have done it. And you were right, Bob. That the trick was finding nucleotides that would contribute to the double helix, that would have the same physical relationship. They found other nucleotides that would pair up. But they would break the helical structure of the DNA. So what first, are they you need called? two what nucleotides. Are the letter designations? 
Well, you were one of your letters was correct. P is correct. Ooh, the other one that was Z. So oh, Z and P. So they found these two nucleotides that not only will bond to each other, but they will integrate into the DNA and they will maintain the double helix. So they said that the pairs integrate well in, with conventional pairs and the DNA can evolve, they said. So I, I guess it does everything it's supposed to do. Some of the reporting about it, though, was a little wonky. Like they said that this could lead to new proteins. No, not going to lead to new proteins. It's not a new amino acid, you know. Just DNA codes for proteins. It doesn't mean that because you've expanded the code, you could make new proteins. It doesn't make new protein structures or amino acids or anything available. So that made no sense. I don't know what the hell they're talking about. But it does mean that there's, you know, this, this is a potentially synthetic DNA. I don't know if having a six letter instead of a four letter code could really be used. I guess so. I remember we talked previously about researchers that they were able to like change the code of that the that the dna code to incorporate new amino acids remember that yeah Um, yeah yeah yeah. a a six letter code would have more possibilities yeah three nucleotides code for one amino acid now we're talking about really funky synthetic life but the if you did that at least it would be completely incompatible with all existing life i mean at the most fundamental level so you couldn't wouldn't have to worry about interbreeding or anything. Let's go on to number two. Recent research suggests that infants are able to understand abstract relationships even before they develop language. Evan, you think this one is the fiction. Uh-huh. And this one is also science. Oh, wow. Jeez. Oh, Good work. So, Jay, you really? I got, you are, I got slammed by the marjoram there. Yeah. Yeah, yeah. So... This uh, is interesting research. They they were trying to see is if infants can get the concept of things being the same or things being different. So they would show them pairs of things like two Elmo dolls, um, and then they would show them two different things like an Elmo doll and a toy camel, and uh. they they recorded how long the infants looked at the pairs, and after only a few trials. They they got the concept of that these two things are the same, and they would look at them for only a very short period of time. But then if they look, were shown things that were different, they would look at them for longer. So it's they're inferring a lot from this, but yeah, yeah, I, which is always the case with infants because they can't talk. But these this paradigm I think is well established. But you know it is what it is. But in any case, what they were saying is that at the very least, if you could you could do a same paradigm in animals, and you could show that. Uh, like they did this with other primates, and it re- took them 1,500 trials before some of them, this is with, with baboons, before some of them would have this effect, would seem to get the concept of the same versus different. Whereas with human infants, it took only four to six trials before they would appear to get it. What the researchers speculate that this study supports is the notion that our thinking is based on a very fundamental level, even independent of language, because these are infants who don't know how to talk yet, on the notion of analogies, of being able to understand when things are the same and things are different, and the ways in which they're the same, you know, the, the ways in which they're analogous, that this is a fundamental building block of human thought. Obviously, you know, we need a lot more research before we can make such sweeping statements, but that's where they, they think yeah. the research is headed. 
But Steve, isn't it possible that even though those infants cannot speak, but language has begun uh, to grab a foothold in, in, in their minds because they've been exposed to it for so long? Yeah, certainly. But yeah, I mean, I think at that age, like these were like seven months. Oh, my God, yes. Infant. Yeah, but yeah, they're, they're, they're only still, a There's some away. language going on, I think, inside their yeah. heads. Yeah. But they're not speaking yet. Right, right. They certainly don't have like, you know, at that age, maybe they're recognizing individual words. They're not, you know, they don't have sentence or grammar, you yeah. know what I mean? Or syntax or all that stuff hasn't come in yet. Okay, which means that Italian physicists have announced the discovery of the Majoranon, the first elementary particle that is its own antiparticle. That is fiction. Uh, Bob, you are correct. This is a theoretical particle, but no one really believes it exists. Uh, it is one that occurs outside of the standard model. It's beyond the standard model. The Majorana fermion is the alleged particle after the Italian physicist who thought of it, Majora. Um, and it is its own antiparticle. But what that means is that, uh, yeah, that they can't exist. <laughs> they can't exist. Yeah. Um, right. And other things. What what the study is, what the new study was, was the physicists were able to simulate it, not not create it or discover it, but they were uh. able to create like a simulation of the particle so that they could essentially experiment on its theoretical qualities. So it was just a, a quantum simulation, they said. So it still could have interesting applications. So my, my instincts were good. Bob, you know what I'm saying? I think so. Yeah, yeah. I hear you, Jay. Very good. Very lucky. Yeah. I mean, good. <laughs> Very lucky. I mean, good. Yeah. <laughs> right. Yeah. So I, from what I was reading, it sounds like no one's expecting that we're ever going to actually find this particle. It's just a theoretical sort of construct. But and I'm looking right. I mean, I I saw the I saw the title of that news item and I didn't read it and I forgot yeah. I forgot the keyword in the title which says simulate. <laughs> simulate. Ah. <laughs> Yeah, hoist on your own petard. Yes. yes. <laughs> okay. Well, Evan, do you have a quote yeah, for us? I do have a quote. And here it is. Science is not a boy's game. It's not a girl's game. It's everyone's game. It's about where we are and where we're going. Space travel benefits us here on Earth, and we ain't stopped yet. There's more exploration to come. And those words were spoken by Nichelle Nichols. Lieutenant Uhura. Yeah, that's right. <laughs> Very awesome. nice. Yep. yep. She's, uh, yeah. Well, I mean, do I even have to say it? Lieutenant Uhura, USS Enterprise, popular Star Trek television series, and the motion pictures, and the fan dance, and all that. I mean, come on. What, what else do I have to say? Oh, how about this? And did you know that Nicole's brother Thomas was a member of the Heaven's Gate cult? Really? He died, oh. Yeah, he he oh, died on March twenty March twenty sixth, nineteen ninety seven, in the cult's mass suicide. He was one of them. Wow! Oh wow! He was a he, he was a member for eleven years. Prior to that, he left a final video message saying, "I'm the happiest person in the world." And hmm. I don't know is he is he, and, he's the happiest person off of the world now? I suppose now he now he's the deadest person in the world. Or um, one of them. Well, that's, but, yeah. that's, that's interesting. Uh, but one, I think one of the most interesting footnotes to, uh, to her Star Trek career is when she was actually considering leaving the show. She was going to leave Star Trek. I'm not sure what season this was, but she was considering leaving. And she somehow, she was meeting Martin Luther King Jr. and mentioned it. And he, and he's like, no, please don't, please don't leave the show. You know, you are working 
you know, you're working on a TV show showing a, a diverse, you know, a, a, yeah. di- a diverse society in the future where everyone gets along. That's fantastic. You know, it just to stay on and, and continue doing that, even if you're not necessarily doing the things you would like to do on the show. It's it's such a, a big boon. Yeah. And, uh, and she it wasn't did. perfect, but it was one step. You yeah. Know. Yeah. I think I agree. Take take she, that take that step and then take another. You know, her character was one of the first African American female characters on American television not portrayed as a servant. I think mm. about that. Right. Talk about you know a, a typecast situation, and yeah, I mean she just absolutely busted that ceiling wide open. Thank goodness. Not to mention the kiss with Captain Kirk. Well, that. Uh, mm-hmm. Well, that was that, you know the the show a was itself. a groundbreaker. You know they were. Roddenberry was definitely trying to have a racially diverse cast, and um, you know there was a lot of firsts in that show. Diverse. Yeah, yeah, definitely. You know, Captain Kirk had sex with those aliens for a reason, man. That was you know that was a the subtext there. <laughs> you know, that you found. Yeah, the four vaginaed woman from Omicron Percy I three or something. It was still you know, but yeah, but still white dudes were in control. I mean, all the top you know positions. Well, let's so, not get crazy. Yeah, it, it was like I said, it was a step. I mean, by modern standards, you would look back at it and go, it was still hugely skewed towards, you know, no, ab- Caucasian males. But it, yeah. But, but it, late, was later, later, it was the 60s. It was the 60s. Exactly. Admiral, yeah. w- women captains, women admirals. It just got, and, and eventually, uh, a woman, uh, that was, that was the captain of the, the you know, it wasn't an enterprise. Yeah, Voyager. The ship was, was yeah, Voyager. It wasn't, it, Called the Enterprise, but it was still a Starfleet, you know, the main ship of, of an entire series, and that was fantastic. Yeah, absolutely. You guys watch Mad Men? No, no. So it's not the first season. No. Yeah, right after just, I start watch Breaking Bad, just ended. But yeah, so it's you know a depiction of the '60s, and I think they did a good job of showing how horrifically sexist it was. I mean, you take oh for granted, <laughs> but it was. It's like it's amazing how far removed we are from that, even with one generation. Sure. You think about the yeah. characters in that's that really movie. That's our yeah. parents' generation. You know, that's that's when we were kids, and yeah, fifty years ago, it was. Oh my God! It was just you know, the. You imagine anything like that happening today, and it would be completely unacceptable, at least in you know most places. But yeah. it's it's it is you know amazing to think. We still, I'm not saying we're there yet, but we still have, we obviously still have a ways to now, go. But it was what a dramatic difference. It just reminds right. me, slaps had, you in the face with how different it is. I saw the first couple slap episodes, and yeah, it is a slap in the face. And she, and you're right, we um we we're not perfect by any stretch of the imagination, but. Two thi- one thing is undeniable. We've come a long way, and it gives me so much hope for the next generation, the next 20 or 30 years. They're going to look back at, at how it is today and be like, damn, guys, what the hell were you thinking? So uh, <laughs> right. in, in huh. a lot of ways, I think that, of course, it's going to happen. But uh, so. So, I th- so I think we're on a good trajectory here that uh, that still needs some uh, – definitely needs some work. But uh, I'm still happy where, where we seem to be right. going. Right, right, right. The future's bright. I talk to my daughters about their – culture you know their their peers and everything and they're they're pretty progressive i mean you know they for example you know they literally to them like being gay or transgender or whatever is like being left-handed it literally means <laughs> awesome. nothing awesome awesome you know like the idea <laughs> that anybody could be discriminated against because of their sexual preference is abhorrent to them they're like it's just totally they don't get it it's totally yeah Outside of their ability to to understand, so mm-hmm. which is great, which is fantastic. But Steve, yeah. don't you think sometimes 
that, you know, say when we're in our 70s and 80s, and uh, what are going to be the holdouts, the things that we don't really want to let go about how we think things should be that to our kids and grandkids are going to be like, Dad, what the hell? Yeah. Just right? get with the program. Are there going to be any? Are there going right. to be any? And if there are, what any would they be? That's, that's very interesting. I thought about body. that. Yeah. But, you know, is Hard it going to be loss of privacy or um, I don't know. What, what's it going to be? That's it's funny that you, you brought that up. George just had this on his podcast. He was talking about something very similar. You know, what are the, what, what are the things going to be in the future that we look back on and say, what the hell were we thinking? You know, but Bob is saying the opposite. What are our kids going to say? You know, they're going to think we're old fogies because we're not on board with what, with what social change that they're going to embrace that we're going to think is, is, you know, these kids today kind of thing. Yeah. Um, <laughs> I don't know. The yeah. Charlie game? I don't know. I mean, honestly, I think that, you know, just because of where we're from, we're pretty progressive. And so I'm, I, I just, I, maybe our listeners can suggest something to us as to what that might be. Or maybe it's the thing we haven't even thought about yet because it's right. a trend that hasn't really come to fruition yet. But yeah. I don't know. Yeah, some will say it's vegetarianism, you know, how we used to Maybe. Yeah, maybe it's true, Evan. It might be, you know, that we hold on to our hamburgers. <laughs> you know, for those of us who still still consume meat on occasion. I, um, I'll eat the lab-grown meat if it tastes great, if it passes all the tests. Why not? That will solve all of our problems, wouldn't it? Just have lab-grown meat. Well, we're on their way. We're I like the uh, Hitchhiker's Guide solution where they genetically engineer a cow that wants to be killed and eaten. <laughs> oh, that's great. Perfect. <laughs> Kill me. Kill me. <laughs> I, I've been, been force-fed for weeks. Would you care to eat <laughs> Please, have seconds. God, that guy was a genius. <laughs> oh, man, all right. Well, thank you all for joining me this week. Thanks, Steve. Hey, good hey. to be with you. And until next week, this is your Skeptic's Guide to the Universe. The Skeptic's Guide to the Universe is produced by SGU Productions, dedicated to promoting science and critical thinking. For more information on this and other episodes, please visit our website at theskepticsguide.org, where you will find the show notes as well as links to our blogs, videos, online forum, and other content. You can send us feedback or questions to info at theskepticsguide.org. Also, please consider supporting the SGU by visiting the store page on our website, where you will find merchandise, premium content, and subscription information. Our listeners are what make SGU possible. Uh-huh.